0: All right. Well, thank you. And friends, it is so good to be back. And we have so much that I just feel the Holy Spirit's placed upon my heart. We want to just dig into Scripture, and then I'll give you a roadmap of how we'll spend our time. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 139, verses one to 14. Psalm 139, verses one to 14, we'll read scripture, we'll pray, and then I'll give you a glimpse of what God has in store for us. Friends, now listen for the word of God. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, And when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand before me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you again so much for gathering us here together. For those that are here in the sanctuary, for those that might be watching online, we beseech, we ask, we request, we petition, we pray for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Open up the word. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, and all God's people send, amen, amen. Amen. So friends, as you know, you have been on the series in the book of Psalms, and I've been blessed as I've been watching and worshiping with you in the past few weeks, learning from all of the speakers. I'm especially grateful for Pastor Reese, because when you began the series, he gave you a framework, kind of a high-level view of how even the book of Psalms, it parallels the Torah, and there are five unique parts that are also reflected in the book of Psalms. And so even as we go deep, I want to zoom out for the first few minutes to give you a bookend as he introduces it, and I want to zoom out as I kind of remind you about the big picture perspective of the book of Psalms, and then I'll share with you um, the area by which we want to zoom in on today. I want to introduce you and zooming out to a Hebrew word called tehillim. And tehillim is basically where the word psalms come from. Tehillim is the Hebrew version. Tehillim translated in Greek is psalmoi. And that's where we get the word currently today of psalms. And probably the Best translation There's no fully accurate translation, but I think the best translation is that Tehelim Samoy is a compilation, it's a, a gathering of poems, hymns, and prayers. So, what is Psalms? Psalms is a compilation. As Pastor Reese shared, David writing half of it, most likely, and some other authors, some unknown to us, is a compilation of poems, hymns, and prayers. Some of you might be wondering, well, why is it that in the year 2023, uh, we're doing a series on Psalms when it's so way in the back? The reality is, you might not actually know this, but there are pastors and scholars who believe that Psalms, that Tehillim, that Psalmoy, is most likely the most read book in the Bible. In fact, some of you, in fact all of you, probably know a particular verse that has been impactful from Psalms in your life. Now sometimes you'll know a particular verse, you might not know the exact citation where it is, but when you're going through a a difficult circumstance, you're going through a crisis, you're going through a situation, you're going through a high moment, you're going through a time where you need God's intervention, uh, it's amazing how scripture just comes out of our very soul. Now, why is that? Danielle Strickland spoke about the fact that when you have songs that you digest and you sing just as we did, it's amazing how these songs become rooted into our life. Well, that's the purpose of Tehillim, Samoy, Psalms. They're hymns, poems, and prayers. For example, remember that verse that says, The heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever walked around in creation on a hike somewhere and you just look out and you go, the heavens declare the glory? That's from Psalms 19.1. Or how about that verse that says, the Lord is my light and salvation. There are times I'm going through a moment of just fear or anxiety, and just out of nowhere, from the depths of my soul, it just comes out, that prayer, the Lord is my light and my salvation. That comes from Psalms, specifically 27.1. Or how about God is our refuge and strength? That comes from Psalm 46.1. One of my favorites, one that you probably know, the Lord is my shepherd, who saw my notes earlier. (laughs) And then today, in our reading, it says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. There are times when I'm feeling low in my self-esteem, I feel cut or degraded in some way, and I have to declare that I am fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. But it's not just us. Do you know that in the New Testament, there are 360 occasions where our New Testament writers quote the Old Testament? 360 times, and 112 are specifically from the book of Psalms. So even in the early church just As it's forming and shaping us, even in the early church, they were singing and reciting and they were poeming, if you will, the book of Psalms. Did you know that the book of Psalms is the largest or the biggest compilation of chapters? 153, it's number one. In terms of words, it's number two. I believe Jeremiah has the most amount of words. I'm not sure if you're interested at times in like Bible trivia pursuit, but just as an FYI, if you're ever in a competition, Did you know that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible? Did you know that Psalm 117 is the the shortest chapter in the Bible? When my wife and I, we feel convicted to memorize scripture, I always tell, I feel the Holy Spirit telling you to recite and remember Psalm 119. (laughs) Uh, I, I feel led to recite Psalm 117. In fact, with Psalm 117, two verses, if you know the words, praise the Lord, you have memorized 30% of that particular <laughs> chapter. My point, friends, is that the book of Psalms, Tehillim, Samoy, this is the word of God. And it speaks life and word and guidance to you. So as Pastor Reese gave you the the five parts as it parallels the Torah, in addition to that, I want you to know that there are different kinds of psalms. And we don't have the time to break down every single one, but uh, scholars kind of categorize seven different types of psalms in the entirety of the book of Psalms. For example, there are wisdom psalms. There are royal psalms that speak about the coming messianic rule. There are, here it is, lament psalms. We don't speak enough about lament psalms, where there are emotions, high, lows, pain, difficult circumstances. There are something called imprecatory psalms, where we're basically, in our human emotion, speaking and asking for God's judgment. To pour out God's indignation or anger. And I'm not suggesting that that's where God wants us to be forever, but my point is in our relationship with God and this gathering of Psalms, poems, and prayers, what God is saying is you can bring your authentic self to God. He doesn't want you to stay there forever, the anger or indignation, but it's amazing that as we read some of these Psalms, they're pretty raw, they're vulnerable. The fifth one is thanksgiving songs. The sixth one is pilgrimage psalms that speak about festive psalms for journeys and feasts. And the last one is called enthronement psalms, where we speak about praising God's majestic rule over the entire creation. So today, as we've zoomed out, now I want to zoom in a little bit. And today, I want to speak to you about the search for purpose and identity. The search for purpose and identity. And in many ways, these aren't necessarily two different divergent things. They're very much interconnected to one another. So let me take a stab at trying to explain why identity matters. It's interesting because if you were to do a simple, just an online search for identity, that word, you'll be shocked at the number of queries that are produced. Uh, Just this week, I just, just Googled in identity and trillions upon trillions of responses come up in response to the word identity. In the last 20 years especially, and then escalating up dramatically, the number of books and journals and publications and blog posts and talks centering around identity have just skyrocketed. And my point to you is this, whether you are in church, out of church, believer, -believer, non-believer, faith-inclined, not faith-inclined, I think as a human being, wherever you might be living on this planet Earth, the notion, the idea of identity is something on our minds and hearts. To give you a simple definition on a personal level, this is what it says, identity often refers to a person's sense of self, meaning how they view themselves as compared to other people, the individual characteristics by which a thing or person is recognized or known. Now, we can do a really deep dive into the multiple major spheres of identity that speaks into these things. We don't have that time, but if I were to summarize what I just said with some basic questions, these are all fancy words for human beings when they ask the following questions. It goes like this. Who am I? Who am I? I suspect that if you're like me, at many points or stages of our lives, we've asked that question, Who am I? And linked to that question, we've also asked, Well, what's my purpose? Which is the reason why your church leaders have offered for your formation and discipleship in search of purpose. Because as a human being, all of us want to live a life that matters or has some sort of purpose. Now, what I want to offer to you today as we read this psalm and as we study this psalm is that as we wrestle with the questions, who am I and what's my purpose, I actually believe there is a third question that absolutely matters, and it's this. Who do I worship That our wrestling, our answer, our peace, our joy in response to that question, who do I worship, is utterly essential. Now even if you're not a theist, meaning someone that believes in a higher God or a higher being. So let me just zoom out for a little bit from a Christian lens to a theistic lens. One that believes in a higher being. Whether you are a theist or not, I believe, along with many people, that human beings, every one of us, worship someone or something. All of us. There's something within our hearts that yearn to be attached to something. And so the question, who do I worship? Absolutely matters. Now I'll speak about this a little later on. But to give an example of how this shapes our everyday life. If you were someone that worshipped mammon. The Aramaic word for, for money and wealth. If you worship God and Mamon, that you saw it more than just a currency or an economy, and it was something that shaped everything that you do, then money becomes the primary lens by which you see everything. So it doesn't just captivate your attention. It doesn't just grab your affection. But it actually begs for your adoration and worship. And the next thing you know, we become idolaters. So every one of us, we worship something or someone. So that question, who do I worship, is absolutely essential to the heart of the book of Psalms. In fact, I would actually say, in addition to who do I worship, another question that matters for us as followers of Jesus. Is this three words, whose am I? Who do I belong to? So as to say, theologically, we're not just saying that we believe in this celestial, amorphous, nebulous, theistic theistic God. We believe that the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, go back about four months to the Advent season, that God came near. That God became one of us. So we don't just merely believe in propositional truth. Where we're trying to prove the existence of God. We believe that this propositional truth has become personal in Jesus Christ. Who do I worship? And whose am I? Uh, This is the reason why these words from our Psalm 139, For you, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Here's a God who created our inmost being. So, with that in mind, I want to share with you four things, four things practically that I'm hoping we can glean from our passage that speaks in search of purpose and identity. Here's point number one is that, friends, we've got to be very aware of something called the cultural deception of worth. The cultural deception of worth. And specifically, fame, power, beauty, money, sex, and success. Now, let's dig into this a little bit. What I don't want you to hear is me saying that everything in our larger culture is bad, erroneous, antithetical to the kingdom of God, or dangerous. But I am saying that in the human search for meaning and purpose, there are many things In our world that's trying to shape our soul to speak about worth and meaning. All of us. And if we're not wise, if we're not discerning, if we're not astute, if we're not guided by the Holy Spirit, if the Word is not a lamp unto our feet, we can be misguided in different ways. You see, if you take advertising 101, For some of you that are into marketing, and again, I'm not suggesting that marketing is bad. I understand that it has its place, but they'll often tell you in Marketing 101 of something called the Power 5 or the Power 6. They'll tell you about these elements, fame, power, beauty, money, sex and success, and that after much research on the human psychology, on the issues of home human sociology and anthropology, what they tell us is that these elements are pain points, worth points, or identity points in the human life. So as a result, if you try and you're wanting to speak and to move someone, you speak to these six elements. That's why a lot of the advertising is around, if you drive this car, you'll be successful. And here's the thing. The illustration that I wanna give you is this. I don't care if you drive or not, but for those that do drive, if you were to ask me, Pastor Eugene, define a car. For me, I don't really care about the model, the year, the brand. At the end of the day, An automobile is a mechanical device that is designed to take people from point A to point B. Right? There's lots of elements about... and horsepower and color and amenities. And that's fine. If you have a, a newer car, good for you. If you have an older car, good for you. If you drive a Ford, good for you. If you drive a Tesla, good for you. I don't really care. My point is this. At the end of the day, it's a mechanical device that takes us from point A to point B. The danger is, and the brilliance of marketing, is if they can convince the human being that an automobile Designed to take you from point A to point B. An inanimate object has the power to make you believe that that car is able to speak worth and identity to your human soul. That is both powerful and dangerous. And we've all fallen prey of that. Like, we'll look at some cars and go, woo! dang. I'll give you a very short example. I remember my uncle and aunt some time ago, they gave me a tie for a gift, and it was hideous. It was so hideous. And I know they don't watch YouTube, so it's okay. But it was such a hideous tie, except... When I turned the tie over and I saw the name brand, in a moment, in an instant, my entire response to that tie changed because of a name brand, because I've somehow been seduced into thinking that it has the ability to speak worth to my soul. It's quite embarrassing, but true. This is the reason why we have to be careful about the cultural deception of worth. That everything has its role and its place, but if anything supersedes the lordship of Jesus, then it has the possibility of becoming an idolatry. Now, I'm just gonna give an example, and uh, this is a long point, but it's really, really important. Uh, Let me give you an example of something from a 100 or so years ago. Because when I talk about things in a cultural, contemporary context, surely people are to be offended. So let me just take a step back and give you an example from a 100 years ago (laughs) in 1928. An example from the American Tobacco Company. Now, we can now agree, whether you smoke or not, we can now agree... That smoking, universally, it's bad for your health. So much that we have rules about secondhand smoking. But in 1928, the American Tobacco Company, and friends, I am reading most of this section from some research that I've done. The American Tobacco Company hired someone by the name of Edward Bernays. He was kind of a young hotshot marketer with lots of crazy, wild ideas. And his whole premise is that men and women, that people, did not make rational decisions. His whole premise was that people were fundamentally irrational, and the way to change them or manipulate them was to speak on emotional and unconscious levels. Now, the tobacco industry hired him because... There was one market in society they could not break into, okay? And that market was women. So you go back to the 1920s, I mean, people are huffing and puffing left and right. And then they couldn't crack into women because they wanted to make more money. And so as a result, this is what Bernays did. He hired a group of women and got them into the Easter Sunday parade in New York City. Now, there are no oohs and ahs here because clearly you don't know how big the Easter Sunday parade was back then. It was the Super Bowl back during the 1920s to the 40s. It was incredible that he had them participate in it and so the whole plan was, Bernays planned it, that these women in the parade at the right appropriate moment of his design, they would all stop in the parade all together and they would light up their cigarettes all at the same time. Then he hires photographers to take the best flattering photos of the women, which he then passes to every single major national newspaper. He then tells the reporters... That these ladies were not just lighting their cigarettes, but they were lighting, quote unquote, torches of freedom, wow. yeah. demonstrating their ability to assert their own independence and be their own woman. Hiring celebrities to advertise, it was Bernays' idea. Creating fake news articles that are actually subtle advertisements for products, that was Bernays' idea. My point to you, friends, is this. Next thing you know, women are huffing and puffing. You'll be shocked to see advertisements in the 30s and 40s of women who are pregnant huffing and puffing. Beware of the cultural deception of worth. Let's get into point number two. And it's gonna get a little serious here, but let's just do it. Here's point number two. The devil is real and seeks to exploit our weaknesses. Now, the reason why I get a little nervous about this is the privilege I've had to travel to different places and countries, and uh, sometimes when I speak about the devil is real, responses vary. Some people fold their arms like this and they get a little uncomfortable anytime you mention spiritual warfare or the devil or Satan or Beelzebub, whatever word you want to use. Some people that are coming from a more Pentecostal, charismatic background, they're hollering, waving their hankies, they're throwing their shoes at me. It's different responses to different things. But my point to you is this, and this is very important. My point to you is, friends, the devil is real. I don't have all of the specifics. I can't rationalize everything in a 20-point sermon, but all I know is the devil, spiritual warfare, is biblical, and the devil is real. And if the devil is real, it seeks to exploit our weaknesses. Now, there are two gigantic mammoth mistakes that Christians today make about the devil. I wanna talk about this. But to illustrate that, if I were to ask you rhetorically, what's the opposite of God, if you're like 98, 99% of Christians that I've spoken to, the first automatic response, the opposite of God is Satan. And therein lies the mistake. Here's C.S. Lewis, the brilliant theologian, from the UK who speaks about this tension. He was giving a talk at Magdalen College in Oxford on July 5th, 1941, and this is what he has to say about the opposite of God. Listen to this, quote, there is no uncreated being except God. God has no opposite. The proper question is whether I believe in devils, I do. That is to say, I believe in angels and I believe that some of these by the abuse of their free will have become enemies to God. Satan, the leader of dictator of devils is the opposite, not of God but of Michael, the archangel. So what are the two big mistakes? Mistake number one is if you're a Christian today in 2023 and you go, devil doesn't exist, it's a myth, it's a lie, it's a sham, it's nothing, and you're being foolish. The second mistake is that we cower in fear to the devil. We give it too much authority. We give it too much airtime. We give it too much real estate in our minds and hearts. You're aware of it, you're sensitive to it, but there is no authority beyond the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if we live in that wisdom of acknowledging both things, then I would say we have to be realistic about acknowledging that the devil, who is real, also has an agenda. If Jesus' agenda, if God's agenda is life and life abundant, then the devil's agenda, being a liar, a deceiver, is to to exploit our weaknesses. Friends, think about this for a second. I don't know if you're a competitive person or not, but if you are and you like board games or sports and what have you, like everything is fine until someone says, let's keep score. Right? Everything before that is like nice fellowship, right? So in our family, we love playing board games, but our kids will tell you they're in their 20s and they still cry when they play me because we're keeping score and I will crush them in Monopoly, all right? I'm not a pastor when I'm playing Monopoly. Like you land on my property, you pay up, okay? give another example. Let's just say Pastor Reese and I are playing ping-pong, right? We're playing ping-pong. It's just nice. It's West Coast versus East South Coast, and it's Australia versus Korea. We're just, we're just playing. And then he says the magic words. He says, hey, let's play a match. Now, Because I like competition, and I know he does as well, what I'm going to do is I've assessed, even as we're rallying and practicing, what his weaknesses are. And if he's like anyone that's played ping pong, the preference for 90% plus is that people always prefer their forehand. And they struggle with their backhand. So if my agenda is to win... I am going to hit every ball possible to his backhand. That's just the reality. And for us not to acknowledge that the Satan is real and seeks to exploit our weaknesses and not put on the armor of God is nonsensical. This is the reason why I love the wisdom of uh, Francis Chan, who says, Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. So we're like gathering, accruing all of these identity points in our lives. We're gathering, 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 because we've been seduced into thinking that the person with the most toys at the win wins. That person also dies. Listen to what Matthew in the New Testament tells us in chapter 16, verse 26. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? So, what's the remedy? Oh, what's our antidote? What's our response to these cultural deception? Well, let's transition into this. And that's point number three, is that our identity is rooted in this truth. God loves you. God loves you. Listen to what it says in verse 1 to 3 in our psalm reading for today. These words will penetrate your soul. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Now, friends, if you're like me, I have two responses to this. A part of me feels good. Wow, God has searched me. He knows me. He loves me. But when I first read the psalm, When I was a newer Christian or someone wrestling with faith as a teenager, this, it scared me. Why? Because as human beings, somehow, over time, we've been conditioned, put on your best front. We put on our best front. We're projecting something. We're projecting the cultural identities of worth in some ways. Right? This is really important. This is the reason why I believe without a shadow of a doubt, I know that God loves you. Because God knows everything about you. Now, let's just be honest for a second. There's got to be things in your life that you've not told someone else. There's got to be mistakes, thoughts, decisions, actions. There's got to be things, maybe way in the past, when you were way, way, way back old, where you've told no one this, like every one of us, there is a closet that no one has access to. perhaps. And what I'm telling you is, God knows everything about you. Let me zoom out here. My wife and I, we just celebrated 26 years this past month. And when she and I first dated many, many years ago, we had five very intense dates before we got into a long-distance relationship. We, We met in Korea. This is before email was introduced. And so we were writing letters at that time. But on our first date, on our first date, Minhee, my wife, looks at me, and we're having a pleasant dinner, and then as the meal is wrapping up, she asks the scariest question I think a human being can be asked. She looks into my eyes, clearly smitten by me, and then she says, "Uh, why are you laughing right here? She says, tell me everything about your life. Oh, that was scary. <laughs> In that moment, I was gripped by fear. In that moment, I was wrestling with the question, do I tell her everything or do I tell her the Christian version? Wow. Uh, it's not my intent to deceive, but the Christian version is like, um Men he... Uh, you look off to the side for a moment to look dramatic and then you look at her again and you say um i um i once was lost but now i'm found <laughs> but why why because in that moment I was wrestling with this question. If this person knew everything about me, there would be zero chance that she could possibly be interested in a second date. God knows everything about you. And how do we know God loves you? He's still here. He's still pursuing after you. That's the third point, friends. And here's the last thing that I want to share is this. Our identity is rooted in this truth that God's grace changes everything. Now, in verse 7 and 8 and 9 and onward, David, kind of under the layers of what he's saying, under this majestic psalm, this worship psalm, he's also acknowledging That he's lived a life in such a way that there were moments he sought to hide from God. He ran away from God out of fear, out of guilt, out of shame. David sought to run away from the goodness and the power and the love of God. And sometimes we do that. Right now, even as Christians, we might be cowering in fear. And I want you to realize, no matter who you are, what you've done, nothing is greater than the grace of Jesus Christ. Grace changes everything. And it changes you. That if we understand that our identity is rooted in this truth, that becomes The lens by which we see everything, ourselves, others. Grace changes everything. Let me try to prove a point to you. Pastor Reese, if you wouldn't mind. I've asked Pastor Reese to help me with this. He's a little nervous, but let's have Pastor Reese come up, okay? All right. Yes, thank you, Pastor. Now, I have asked Pastor Reese to bring me. This sounds so weird. I've asked him to bring me some cash. Okay, so I've asked him to bring me a hundred-dollar bill, a fresh one. May I have it? I wasn't able to get it. Uh-oh, no. Okay. Okay. Whew. okay. All right. It's a hundred-dollar bill. This is a great way for me to make an extra hundred during <laughs> sermon illustrations. Now, I asked him to bring this to make an example. Now, my acknowledgement is that this is valuable for him. He's got kids that if they're like my kids, they eat like seven meals a day. Correct. I also acknowledge we're in some challenging inflation times, and if I were to ask you the question, who here wants a free hundred dollar bill, like, let's just be honest, like all of our hands (laughs) would go up, right? And I can see some of you trying to be Christian, you're like, you're you're trying to do this here? Of course. Because we know that it's valuable. But what if I said to this, you are worthless and you'll amount to nothing. I can't use you. You're a failure and you bring shame to me. Just get out of my presence. You disgust me. You still want this? Yeah. <laughs> but what if I? man. Uh, You still want this? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You still want this? I still want it. (laughs) Friends, listen. I remember watching a form of this illustration from a pastor in South Africa many years ago and it's always left such a mark on my heart. Hmm. Why? Why would he want this back? Because no matter what's been said. No matter what's been done, no matter how much it's been trampled, no matter how much it's been beaten down Mm -hmm. at the core, he wants it back because its worth has never changed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Friends, listen. Tim Keller says this about the gospel. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ Mm. than we ever dared hope. Amen. Amen. May the gospel, may the gospel of Jesus Christ be your identity. May it shape everything that you do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. May it be your lens. May it be your beginning and the end. May it be the response to your question, who do I worship Mm -hmm. and whose am I? Lord, that's our prayer Mm -hmm. for each man, woman, and child right now, may the gospel take hold of each and every person. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, brother.